But why don't we talk first, because we didn't have a chance to, about the Mona Lisa, because this yeah. was kind of a, um, it's new, a, it's new a direction sort for of you, sequel. this series. Oh, these two books, yeah. 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 These are um, both historical fiction. Um, the Last Mona Lisa... Uh, the Last Mona Lisa and The Lost Van Gogh. By the way, I, so The Lost Van Gogh is a working title. and Yeah, because I didn't have a title for it. And it is about a painting that was lost, is found, is lost again, and then the history of... of and maybe it never really existed. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. But I, yeah. I'll, uh, so historical fiction was something new for me. And I sort of stumbled into it with the last Mona Lisa. I became obsessed. I didn't know, do, do most of you probably do know that uh, the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre Museum in 1911. So this disgruntled Louvre employee, he was fired, Vincenzo Perugia. <coughs> and um, so he hid in a kind of broom closet overnight. He knew that the next morning the museum was closed to the public. He came out, he was wearing his Louvre, you know, whatever uh, smock, and um, he had been the carpenter who made the frame and the glass for the Mona Lisa. This was a new thing in 1911. And so he knew exactly how to take it apart. He took it off the wall, he put it under his, like, jacket, and he walked out of the museum. Although he did have a, the, the beginning of the last Mona Lisa is in his head stealing the painting. And he took the frame and the glass and he dumped it in the hallway and he left. I think the best part to me about that true story is that nobody at the Louvre missed the painting for two days. <laughs> no, nobody knew it was gone. They, one, you know, uh, I mean, they saw the, this blank wall. Some people thought, oh, it must be being cleaned. Somebody's thought something else. Uh, and then, you know, when they realized it had been stolen, a huge effort went out to find it. And w they interviewed every Louvre employee. And when they went to Vincenzo Perugia's house, he, he had built a kind of table with a false bottom where he had the painting. And they had him sign on that table, you know, that he had nothing to do with the theft. They had no idea. And the painting, he had the painting for two years. And during that time, uh, there were fakes made. There were forgeries made of the Mona Lisa that were sold as the original. And that's where I got the idea for that story, because it was just too good to be true, you know. Um, and I, but you know, when I researched Vincenzo Perugia, he just wasn't that interesting. So I decided to give him a much more interesting backstory. And I, so that book, like this one, there's this old story in the past that traces Perugia, uh, he, he's living in Paris with this woman he loves, Simone. It was the first time I really wrote a, a romance. I really, I liked that. Um, and then it's, those are small sections against the contemporary story. And the contemporary story is um, Luke Perone, who I call Peroni because I have a friend with that name. Um, Luke and his girlfriend, Alex. And I, I, I just want to say she's much more than his girlfriend. She's brilliant. She's an art historian. They both have one thing in very much in common. Luke's great-grandfather is Vinc Vincenzo Perugia, who stole the Mona Lisa. And Alex's father is a notorious art thief. Um, so, and then there's a, a third character, an Interpol agent, John Washington Smith. So those three characters are in the new book. Um, it's a very different book, mm, same structure, but... Okay. You know, I thought the most sinister part of the Mona Lisa book was the thought that we don't know for sure if we got the real painting back. What if, in fact, the painting that came back to the Louvre was in fact a successful forgery. I hated that you said that because now it's made me nervous. Well, you know, there's a lot of theories. One is that Perugia actually, the painting had already been exchanged for a fake 
at the Louvre. That's one story, and they think he may have stolen the, a forgery. The other thing is that, yes, he may have replaced it with a forgery. Now, I just have to tell you that the uh, I pulled some strings coming from the art world where I did to be able to be uh, on a day off standing with two guards on either side of me looking at the Mona Lisa like this. And it was amazing and fantastic to do that. When the book came out, and it, when it came out particularly in France, in French, um, the curators who had helped get me in to see the Mona Lisa were furious at me. So, because my book sort of, I mean, I never say it, but it's what Barbara just said. It, it kind of pushes that idea that the painting in the Louvre might be a fake. So when I went back to Paris, I didn't ask to see it alone. I went to see it with everybody else, you know. I thought you might hear from them. I, I, I didn't. Yeah, I did. I right. did. It's not like they banned me from the Louvre or anything. Mm -hmm. But, but I still, did. Yeah, yeah, they were. Didn't, they so have you been, I have been nose to nose with the Leonardo's at the Hermitage, where the, it, that's the, the Russian art museum. And the criticism there. I said it's a very old building. It was a palace for Catherine the Great. And the Louvre, I mean, the, the Da Vinci is in front of an open window. So the dust is falling <laughs> yeah. in. Right. Um, well, when I said nose to nose, I was not really kidding. You know, I was sort of not dead and touch it. But so there's big questions about, you know, who, who should really be taking care of great art. I mean, it's the whole argument about the Elgin marbles and all kinds of other stuff. And, you know, it would probably never be fully resolved. Well, you know, I have two things to say. One is I, can't, I don't recommend that you steal, you know, a famous work of art. It's very hard to unload. Um, uh, in my research, you know, I've talked to a lot of FBI, not a lot, several FBI people, a CIA guy, a Scotland Yard person, and the, the FBI man who's retired, you know, told me lots of stories, and I did a lot of research about stolen art for these two books. And um, one story he told me about a, a completely, you know, a young guy in Austria stealing a painting out of a museum, a small Van Eyck, very valuable painting. He couldn't, not only could he not get rid of it, but the people he had to go to killed him, <laughs> you know? And, you know, most art that's stolen, famous art, uh, what happens to it? It's used as barter for drugs, arms. You know, you want to start a heroin business, so you need $10 million. You, you commission someone to steal art for you. That's your collateral. They hold that art, and then they give you the money. So it's really, it's sort of the dark underbelly of the beauty of the art world. Uh, right. Or it goes into private collections. So it disappears, yeah. Are you going to resist the siren call of the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There have been, I mean, that's such a tragedy. And, you know, I've we're been... Never, we're, we're never, that's Isabella Stewart Gardner when they, you know, that theft. You can watch that, the Netflix show. Yeah, yeah. It's a four-part. It should be two parts. It's too long. But it is, it tells the story of, the, it was an inside job almost, for sure, and they think now it was the Irish mob. Who knew that there was even an Irish mob? But um, well, in Boston, come on. I, you're right. Of course, how could I not <laughs> think that? Right, right. Right. So those, you know, those paintings were cut out of their frames, so they were already damaged. You know, these were not art lovers. By the way, so you must have the book, the Art Thief, mm -hmm. the Frankel book. The Frankel book. book. Yeah. You have to read this book. It is this slim little book. It's so much fun, um, and it's a true story. And this guy was an art lover and felt he could take care of the art that he stole much better than the museums. So um, that's a whole other and thing. And in some museums, he may be right. He might be right. I mean, you know, as Barbara brought up, the whole idea now, which is what inspired this book, was art restitution. You know, like. I sometimes worry, and I think Luke says it at, toward the end with a museum person, that the museums are going to end up empty because of the work being stolen, taken from indigenous cultures. Well, I could speak to that. There is a, was a brilliant museum in Vancouver which had an impressive collection of 
First Nations art, including some magnificent totem poles and so forth. And when I was in Vancouver for a convention, we spent a day there and I was just awestruck. Then I had an author here from Vancouver who has his own private art museum because he has He's an art. He's an author, but actually rich outside, you know, being an author, which is not a road to getting rich. And he told me that the museum is basically everything, and it's gone back to, you know, to the First Nation people and so forth. And so, you know, I'm only grateful that I saw it briefly. And yeah. and it's a tough, it's a tough subject. You know, you can argue on both sides of it. Well, um, yes, you can, but. Um you know, I mean, uh, I don't think this ruins my my book for you to know that the the sub theme is Nazi looted right. art, and um, you know, right now this week, two Egon Schiele paintings are going up for auction that you know are estimated at several million dollars. But you know, there's a huge moral question of ownership. You know, yeah. if your grandfather or grandparents or great-grandparents had an art collection that the Nazis took, it's essentially yours. It could be your inheritance. Now, many of those collectors, by the way, do not want money. Some do. Some sell it. But many just want recognition. They want a plaque that says the collection of so-and-so and so-and-so. And you know, you'll look the Nazis went into countries they occupied with lists of the art collections that they were after. Well, yeah, you can see it in all the light you cannot see, which I think is currently on television. Um, if you haven't seen The Woman in Gold, I think that's the name yeah, of the movie, or read it, it's absolutely brilliant. I've made two or three pilgrimages right up Fifth Avenue to go and see it at the new yeah, museum. Yeah. Um, so some of it is very, very well known. I think The Woman in Gold, presented, you know, many facets of of the looting and recovery in a way that, you know, it's a klimt. It's um it's a magnificent klimt. Um that you don't get in too many I'm trying to think, Helen Mirren, was she Helen Mirren, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mirren? She's fighting. So if you haven't seen the movie, it's really it's very good. Yeah. It's Ryan Reynolds is her upstart lawyer and it's very it's a it's and all she really wanted was this acknowledgement, but because the museum wouldn't give her the acknowledgement, they they go for the jugular. But well, it was the Austrian museum. It stand it up at the new museum because Ronald. Yeah, Ronald Lauder bought, bought it, it for the Neue. I museum. know about yeah. this because of my sister and Mama, because Ronald Lauder is you know was oh a yeah. big deal there. Yep. Yep. See what you can the money you can make from makeup. Um, that's his currently in decline. You know, that's a lot of family. Right? Yeah, no, no, no. All right, so The Lost Van Gogh, one of the things I think is interesting about it is your narrative structure. Lot, most, not most, many books are told in just one voice, right? It's either somebody that in first person saying, I did and I didn't, or whatever, or it's the author speaking in several voices, but usually there's only one narrative voice. But you, you have a first person account, you have third person, that's technically what we call them. I can't. So, what interested you in having? Well, you can't have the backstory and have Luke, the present guy, telling the story. So, right away, you were going to have at least right. two narrative right. voices if you're going to tell a two-track story. Well, you know, I think um, number one, I would say Barbara knows this, and anybody who's writing, if there are writers here, you know that if you're writing a first-person voice, it's very limited. It's only what that person can see and what they do. Third person is very open and you can, it's, it's uh, you know, an omniscient kind of voice. So, but you know, you get something from both of them. If you have a third person, you can see everything, you can be everywhere, and if, but it's not as intimate as a first person. So I, both of these books, whenever Luke's chapters are all in the first person, they're Luke. And then when everybody else is in the third person, and the big thing for that as a writer is to make it seamless so that you're not really too aware of it. And, you know, a lot mo most crime writers don't do that. But, uh, I've, I mean, I would say I've always had trouble with rules anyway, so, you know. 
Um, I, I th and I think it's more interesting, plus I love having two stories, a past story and a present story. And, uh, you know, then you, each one informs the other, you know, so that you're in the past and you're with, um, I mean, you're literally at Karen Hall, Gehring's, uh, um, you know, his estate where he kept all this art that he stole. But I trace... I'm going off track a minute, but I trace what happened to that painting from, you don't learn till the end, and I'm not gonna tell you, but how it left Van Gogh, how it made it to Paris, and how it made it to New York so they could find this painting. And in the, you know, to me that's great fun to have two stories at the same time, and they just keep flipping and they keep informing each other, and they have to be told differently you know that to me i mean sometimes when i'm writing those books and i want to jump out the window because they're complicated um i'm still happy about it and you know when i'm writing the contemporary story which is the main story a moment comes and i and i think oh right here the reader needs to know this from the past they just and here it is so you know yeah. In his short life, Van Gogh painted a remarkable number of paintings. Um, yeah. Did any of you see it when it was here, the um, video of Van Gogh? It was one at the Science Museum years ago, which was really brilliant. And then there was the one in the... Right, I've been to both. Um, and so he, he, you know, he's very prolific. You can go to museums. I mean, I've been to the Van Gogh in Amsterdam, I think, three times. Um, and they, last time I was there, they had a David Hockney as a parallel show upstairs, pointing out the different, I mean, the... They the have some weird shows yeah, at the... Yeah, but they were showing, they were trying to indicate that Hockney today is sort well, of like Van Gogh Well, I could was. see what he stole. And, I and could it see did that. work, you know? I mean, Hockney's not my I favorite painter. No, I love Hockney. I think mm. he's great. I do, I love him. But I, yeah, you know, I... I studied art history as well, so I kind of, I could make a case for almost anything, you know, art-wise. I mean, yeah, I, and I have, I love doing that, you know. Right, but my point was, yeah, with so all of that, all of that work, it's certainly possible there's a bank on that's missing. Yeah, sure, I mean, well, so, I just want to say, so you know, so Van Gogh, moved to Auvers-sur-Oise. Auvers-sur-Oise is north of Paris, like an hour away. Beautiful town, beautiful, beautiful town. And he lived there for, as Barbara says, prolific. He lived there for 70 days and he made 75 paintings. And they're all fantastic. They're all great. Um, so I also, have Van Gogh's story gets merged into this as well. I will tell you that, so Carolina, my friend, is a great artist here. I met at Yado. So Yado is the oldest arts community, writers, composers, painters. This It's like art paradise, you know, they take care of you. But um, w I went to Yado with a draft of this book before the final draft, and it was almost 700 pages. It's now 311, so um, I really chopped out a lot. Less is always more. But um, Van Gogh, you know, going, oh, by the way, so Van Gogh, Van Gogh, my Dutch friends, Van Gogh. I can't do the Gogh, which is why I said Gogh. I just say Van Gogh, because, <laughs> right. you know, we weren't that close. Although... <laughs> If you go to Auvers-sur-Oise, this beautiful, the whole yeah. town is Van Gogh, you know, yeah. everything. And you, the Auberge Ravu where he lived, so he lived in this attic room. Right. It is like from here to the bookcase to here. This monk cell, like it, it astonishing. And um, I brought a French friend of mine with me because my French is so bad, and she talked the guard into letting me go into the room. I couldn't sit in that chair, but I did stand in the room, and I, I tell you, I had like chills from it. Um, but it's where Van Gogh died. It's where he was laid out. And the, my lost Van Gogh, can I just tell you this? So at his funeral, 
his young friend, the artist Emile Bernard, and his brother Theo, they laid him out, they surrounded his head with yellow and orange golden flowers, and they tacked up on the walls most of his paintings. And so Emile Bernard wrote a letter to another artist friend describing the funeral and what it looked like in the room. And he mentions a self-portrait that nobody's ever seen. So I thought, okay, okay, it's out there. Yes, you did. And you also, we could be reminded, he didn't die right away. No. Uh -uh. So he was dying over a period of time. So he died over two days. Yep. Yeah. Right. Um, so we'll never know for sure. I mean, no, I'm looking for that painting, you know, right. so I mean, also, you know, the book combines a fantasy, the other fantasy, which is going to the, you know, the flea market and buying the $25 painting and, you know, turns out to be something else. So, <coughs> you know, the other thing for me with this book, um, I love research. You have to be very careful with research because you then have to edit it down so that your book is neither a travelogue nor filled with you know research that's going to get boring. But you, I always say to, to any writer, you can't write about a place if you don't go there. You don't know what it feels like. You don't know what it smells like. You don't know. You know. You just so it's great in these books. You know, like in the last uh, the, the last Mona Lisa. Um, my editor, right, my agent, right before we were handing the book in to my editor, said, when was the last time you were in Florence? Now, right away, you know that's a bad question, right? You know, the half the book's in Florence. So I said, well, you know, I've been there a few times. And she said, mm, I don't know. You could use a little more Florence color. And I got off the phone, and I mentioned this to my daughter. And my daughter said, so go to Florence. I'm <laughs> You know, how did I bring her up to say a sentence like that? But anyhow, she went on my she went on my computer, and she said, "Where does Luke live when he's in Florence?" I said, "In the Piazza de Madonna." She said, "I got you an Airbnb in the Piazza de Madonna for four weeks." I said, "But I'm working. I'm teaching." She said, "So you have a TA? You have a you know teaching assistant?" She's a pushy girl. I love her dearly. But so anyhow, I went and I lived in the place where, and the book was finished. So the great thing was I just traced everybody's route over weeks and I went to every place again and I really got to know Florence. So then what happened of course is I come home and I have to rewrite the book. And the book was due like in, you know, a month. And it was several months because I had, I had to rewrite it and then I had to cut in half all the new stuff because it was too much. So, and this book, like you, Barbara, so of course I went to Amsterdam. It's a real, the best thing, you know, writing these books so you can go some, yeah. But, um, deductible travels, what you're trying to it say. It is, it's right, right off my taxes, let me tell you. Um, but I did stay in Amsterdam. So, one of the extraordinary things that happened, this happens all the time when you travel, I think, for research. In the last Van Gogh, so, I have a, one of my best friends is like the art auction expert in the world. And he was the editor of Art and Auction. So he knows art people all over the world. So the, for the last uh, Mona Lisa, he said, you have to meet my friend who's an artist. He lives in Florence, and I did. And he had just had an exhibition in this little contemporary space that was part of a prison. And it was the prison where Vincenzo Perugia was locked up when they caught him for stealing the painting. So I said, I got, you've got to get me into that prison. So I went, and um, they locked me in a cell. I mean, and I used it in the book. And it was, I'll tell you, it was pretty scary because I realized my Italian's very poor. And they locked me in the cell, and then they just left. You know, he came back about a half hour later. But by then, you know, the, anyway, it was amazing. And so for this, this book, my same friend Judd said, "You have to meet my friend Christine because her grandfather owned Van Gogh's Doctor Gachet, 
and she's been fighting in the courts to get it back. So I met her, and we had dinner. We ended up becoming good friends really very quickly. And um, then through a friend of hers, I knew I there was a scene I needed at the Anne Frank house. So I ended up, a curator took me through the Anne Frank house to the parts that are not open to the public, but I wanted to then go through with the public because that's the scene in the book. But it, it just, it, these extraordinary things happen when you, I don't know, when you research a book and you fall so deeply into that world. So I got her first-hand ac account of how she'd been fighting to get back at least recognition that her grandfather owned this painting. Um, so that was a pretty amazing sort of thing, you know, too. And then I met this person who was very mysterious, who is basically um, what you'd call a kind of Nazi-looted art hunter and who becomes a character in the book. Like, just this woman just, she scared me to death. I mean, I, I met with her a couple of times. She was like the she was amazing and brilliant, but like, you know, there were like bodies behind her, you know, like, I think she was Mossad, as a matter of fact. I was going to say, I'll bet she was. And also... I want her on my side. Yeah. I, we haven't even mentioned the Monument Men, for example, and if you watch that movie, would know, you know, that, um, right, the rush, the... the do you remember for ages that there was all this talk about the Soviets had spirited away a whole bunch of Impressionists and hidden it somewhere in the bases? Well, my husband and I spent a week at the Hermitage as friends of the Hermitage. So I studied Russian forever ago at Stanford, so I said bravely, we could go in December, I said. Uh. Not whenever. Because if we're going to go back to St. Petersburg, we should really go in the winter, right? That was my... Isn't right. that why they lost? Uh -huh. Well, um, <laughs> but anyway, they have subsequently opened, finally, you know, hung up the Impressionists. And it's a terrible collection. And I thought, wow, did, <laughs> I mean, maybe some of you seen it, you don't agree with me. But, I mean, I grew up in Chicago where the Art Institute was, like, right there. And, you know, other great museums. And so this is a sort of pitiful Impressionist group at the Hermitage. And I went, why did everybody make such a fuss about you it? You know, they had... They gave back a lot of those paintings at an earlier did time. They? they did. So these were and kind of the dregs. Well, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if they're the dregs, but I do know that there was a lot of pressure um, to return paintings. Right. Um, but you know, the Monuments Men, who were were a collector a collection of art historians and right. art dealers, and they really were did amazing work, and they mm -hmm. were brought in and created to get work back to what they did was the work was given back to the country from which it was stolen, right. not the heirs. And the other thing was that they were in existence for a very short time because the American government did not want to think about the war. So they disbanded the Monuments Men way, way too soon, way too soon. Right. You know, I mean, the Nazis stole a fifth of the art in Europe, a fifth of the art. And um, some of it they destroyed in bonfires. Um, some was it was buried. There's still at least documented over a hundred thousand pieces. You know the the Nazis documented all of their thefts because they would come to you with a contract to buy the art from you, basically um, with a gun to your head, and then they would send money to your bank account and then freeze your account. So there was never really any exchange of money. And I read many accounts of people trying to put collections together that are staggeringly heartbreaking and horrible because, you know, a lot of the art collectors that the Nazis um, targeted were, of course, you know, the wealthiest people in those countries. And they went after them and 
uh, ultimately, if they didn't get out, they were all murdered in camps. And these were people who felt totally protected, completely protected. They were friends with the Kaiser. They, they had no idea what was going to happen to them. You know, if you've ever seen The Garden of the Finzi Contini, a beautiful movie, um, you know, these people were blindly, and also were given guarantees by the government that, of course, were not kept. So I, a lot of that is in this book. This is, um, it was hard to, to, you know, to deal with a very serious subject that um, felt very close to me in some ways in what I wanted to be a totally entertaining thriller. You know, and I, and I think that's, I thank Billy Wilder in my acknowledgments, the director, the film director, the old film director, because Billy Wilder, um, his whole family died at Auschwitz. When he was a teenager, he was sent to Paris, and then he worked in the film industry in Paris, and then he went to Hollywood. And in Hollywood, he was already successful in the 40s, and the U.S. government sent him to Berlin to photograph, to film the liberation of the camps, which he did. And he showed the film, it's a half hour film, in Berlin in 19, you know, 1940, it was not even 45, maybe 45. Half the audience got up and left, and the other half were stunned into silence. He, he tried to talk to people, and they just couldn't even speak. They were so horrified. Um, he went back and he decided then that the more serious subject matter you have, the more you'd better entertain people and make them laugh because it's the only way you're going to get your, quote, message across. So I saw these documentaries with him and so I, I thought Billy Wilder gave me permission to write my book and uh, so I thanked him, you know. So He's just one around. more thing before we throw it open to questions. Um, because it's right at the beginning. How is it that this painting is found basically in an attic or a flea market or whatever, disguised? And so the Nazis called stuff like degenerate art or some such thing. So it wasn't unusual for somebody to try to paint over it, and that's that's what happened, right? Well, I, yeah, I mean, your opening scene. I so can, I, you know, it's the only scene I ever read. It takes a minute and a half. And I'll read it to you because I don't usually like to be read to because it always puts me to sleep. But I'll read it. I won't put you to sleep, I hope. But it's the way the book opens. And it is based on a um, something I read. Because I got, as I said before, I think, what was I saying that in New Orleans? Um, I became obsessed with the French resistance. And I just want to say this, Barbara, what, that... The French resistance protected artworks, and it wasn't just that they said, oh, I love this painting or this. They, they said, this was our culture. This is our heritage. How dare these you know, people come and destroy our heritage? And that's, that's why they were hiding paintings. And, and um, you know, the other thing is, before I read this little quick thing, you know, Hitler had put, bombs under every monument in Paris. Do you know this? Under the Eiffel Tower, under Notre Dame. And he said, when the Allies come in, they knew they were losing the war. You are to detonate these bombs. And a German soldier who was in charge of it said, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to go down in history as the man who destroyed the city of light. So we have this decent human being who just disobeyed orders you know, to to do this. So, okay, very quickly. Let's see. And I, I just, you should know that, you know, when I was in, I think, New Orleans, or somewhere, there was a young woman in the back of the room following me as I read. She correct you? Well, the thing is, I what I do is I, I print out the pages and then I edit it down. And I glue them back in, enlarge it, because I'm kind of blind, you know. And so I could see that this young woman was like, you know, <laughs> so you don't do that. <clears throat> Anyhow, this is how the book starts. Paris, August 1944. He could get shot for what he was doing. 
windows shut, shades drawn, the room stifling. One lamp on as he applied a thin wash of glue over the tracing paper. Then he laid it onto the painting, flattened it using a soft rag so that it molded to the surface, taking on the impression of every brushstroke below. This part was crucial, the paper a divider, a layer between the old and the new. While he waited for it to dry, he shook a jeton out of a crumpled blue pack, placed it between his lips, and took a drag, the smoke harsh, the taste bitter. Harsh and bitter, he thought, like the past five years. A moment to fiddle with the dial on the cheap Bakelite radio he'd outfitted with an antenna so he could pick up the BBC, on occasion American music, his favorite. Though it was a criminal offense to listen to foreign radio stations, he didn't care, and it no longer mattered. His good luck tonight, the King Cole Trio, the lead singer's voice smooth as silk despite the static. Hold on, almost there. He mimicked words he didn't understand. It's only a paper moon. Then he tested the painting surface and it was still not dry. According to the company's claim, the new thermoplastic glue would create a strong bond that could be easily removed in the future. Below the translucent paper, the image appeared ghost-like and one he would never forget. Of all the pictures he had painted over, this was the most important. When he touched the surface again, the glue was dry. He applied a layer of water-based paint over the paper, creating a clean surface, then propped the painting, where am I, the canvas onto an easel. He thought about painting a Rouault-like clown or a simple design, then slipped a photograph from his wallet, a picture of his wife, Josette, taken five years ago, before the world had erupted, her face dramatically lit, half of it shrouded in darkness. Jetons between his lips, he poured linseed oil into a small tin and added a few drops of cobalt dryer. Though he knew it would eventually make the paint crack, saving time now was more important. Sorting through his remaining tubes of paint, he arranged small blobs of pigment onto his palette. Mars black, titanium white, burnt umber Naples yellow, and a dollop of precious Venetian red from an almost squeezed out tube. Then a sprinkling of marble dust over them all to speed drying even further. He shifted the lamp closer and worked fast, using his largest brush to paint a dark wash of black and umber to fill in the shadowed side of the face. For the light side, he mixed white and Naples yellow and laid it on quickly, and with a small pointy brush, he added a few deft strokes, indicating the nose, eyes, mouth, then mixed vermilion with more white to make pink and filled in the lips trying to capture Josette's hopeful half-smile. The radio was all static now, but he didn't stop to fix it, lost in the painting, creating shadows beneath the nose and chin, the slightest suggestion of eyelashes working quickly, the thought of another bonfire, possible, even probable, artillery fire in the distance growing louder. A few broad strokes across the forehead and on top of the nose to make them stand out. Then lighter highlights at the corners of the lips and a thick dock dot of white to create a convincing tear in her eye. Something not in the photograph, but Josette had cried so many times in the past four years, he could paint it by heart. After that, he was finished. No reason to labor over painting that would one day be destroyed. He turned it around, painted 1944 on the back, dried his hands, and set the painting in front of a fan. A moment to play with the radio's dial, this time to find the resistance station and his instructions in code about where to deliver the painting. So that's how it starts. Thank you. That's how the book starts, and then we come to the present, and periodically through the book, you're gonna find out how the painting moved from there to there 
to there to there. Uh, and as I said, it's based on a little thing I read about resist a resistance artist covering famous paintings. So we also investigate the death of Vincent Van Gogh. Yeah. And at the end, Jonathan drew some sketches himself, and they are incorporated into the book. So at the very end, there's several, one of which is a self-portrait of you. When I <laughs> All the way to the back, and you'll see them. When I um, go places, because I was trained as an artist, I tend to see the world in pictures. And so, it, like, I draw. So I go to Amsterdam, I draw the canals, and I fill a notebook. And when I came back, my editor um, was, who's, was visiting, and she, I showed her this sketchbook. And she said, could we put some of these drawings in the book? And I said, sure. So she picked, I think, eight drawings that she thought made sense for the book. And then this little self-portrait that I did, it was, I was taking a picture of myself, and then I decided to draw myself, but I finished it at home, but it's just a little pencil sketch. I was standing in front of the Van Gogh Museum, and there's a metallic sculpture, so it's kind of like I my signature. I think his inner Rembrandt got a hold of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there are so many Rembrandt self-portraits, I couldn't yeah, help but think of yeah. it with the whole Dutch connection. Yeah. When well, I was in art school, we had to do like a self-portrait a week, a week. And let me tell you, I got sick of this face. Although now when I think about it, you know, at this age, it's like that, that face was okay. <laughs> um, so any questions from, from people here? You must. You don't have to have a question. You could just make a comment. You know, it's always that first person, but you know. Yeah. Well, this was, I, um, I, you know, the, when I read about the French resistance people doing this, they didn't tell you. But there, so what I did was research all of the glues that could be um, removed later. And there was a brand new thermoplastic glue that had been invented in the early 40s uh, that was a glue you could then take off. So, you know, if you just paint over a painting, um, you could, for example, you could paint over an oil painting with tempera or watercolor, but you would, it's not a good thing to do to a painting. So putting a boundary, a, a, you know, a piece of paper between that, gluing it on uh, with a glue that is dissolvable would be safer, you know, to do, but yeah, so. I would, I imagined it, you know, I mean, I, uh, some people know this, but in my, in my real life, I have this side gig that I, like, I do forgeries, legal forgeries for people, and I know what it's like to forge a painting, you know, it's really fun and crazy, and when I wrote a scene in The Last Mona Lisa of this art forger, I knew just what he felt like, you know, because I've done it, and, um, it's kind. It's kind of wild, you know, to do. So. Why would you cover a painting with hiding? Well, the thing is that they they were fair, so the the German the Nazis were storing paintings at the Jeu de Palme in Paris. That's where they had all their. The great thing about that is I'm blanking on the woman's name. She's mentioned in the book, but this woman who worked there, she was a curator. So she spoke German, but she never let them, the Germans know that. So she would, and she was in the resistance, uh, so she would ferret paintings out of the Jeu de Pomme when none of the soldiers were around. Why would you paint over them? Because um, some paintings they couldn't get out. They were burning paintings. There was, they had huge bonfires when they burned what they called degenerate art, which you'll learn about in the book. But degenerate art was anything modern, anything that wasn't classically German, anything by a Jewish artist, anything by an artist of color, anything by a, you know, a, a homosexual artist. That was all degenerate art. Just to tell you that they made it famous. The Nazis made that work valuable and famous. So good for them in that, you know. But it, it, paintings, um, 
it was easier, I guess, to paint over something and, and than to sneak it out of, I don't know. No, it's a, it's all sort of wild stuff, you know, like, how do you do that, you know? So, yeah. Um, I'm glad you asked that question and not me. <laughs> well, you know, okay, since you asked. Um, in the last Mona Lisa, I paralleled Vincenzo and Simone in the past with Luke and Alex in the, this is how I saw them, in the present. And the backstory is a tragic story. And I used some of my own life for that. Um, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, you know, my, my daughter once called me the least sentimental man in the world. But I'm also, I think, um, a very romantic person. I do think that. Uh, I don't know how to answer your question without like clearing the room, do you know what I mean? Um, so, I mean, I, my wife of many years passed away um, some time ago, very tragically. And uh, anyhow, so my life's been very different. And I mean, I didn't become a monk, so. I have romance, but you know, I don't think it's, I can talk You're about it. You're a single man in New York City. Of course you have romance. Well, let me say this. Look at me, right? I mean, okay. I'm like one of the most eligible men in New York, which proves there's a man shortage, <laughs> you know? There's no other explanation for it at all, you know? So it's pretty wild, you know? Oh, Josh, you had a question. I can't really comment on I mean, yeah, I read about it, and I read about a lot of the things they did, and I used that in the, in the book, because when they're ferreting the painting across Paris, you know, the, tr you know, the war was ending, but um, they used, they were really, these people were really heroic, you know, smart and heroic, uh, brave. I just couldn't, I couldn't get over the stuff they did. So, yeah, this man back here. Well, yeah, you know, as I sit here, uh, my agent is negotiating um, my next two books. And I conceived of this, of the, these Luke and Alex and John Washington Smith books. At first I thought it was one book. Then I had this idea as I was finishing the last Mona Lisa about Van Gogh. Um, and so I thought, okay. And then I realized it was a trilogy. So, but now they're talking about they maybe want me to keep going. You see, the thing is, I I don't know. I don't know. I s but I'm, I'm, okay, I'll tell the truth too. I've written like 50 pages of a third book. Um, the, the negotiation is, am I going to do, you know, that and then another? I don't want to think that far ahead. Also, I'm too old to think that far ahead. Um, is, but I, there is another book. Don't you say that around me? Well, you know, I... <laughs> Yeah, no, I know, but you you know, you look better than I do. So um, I think, yeah, I have this other idea for a book that I think is really fun, and I'd like to also take a break and just do that, even though I feel so close to these characters. You know, I, uh, I'm not Luke. People always think you're your main character. Luke is 37, 
He's tall. He's handsome. Physically, he's really, I kind of based him on my son-in-law, who's six foot seven and covered in tattoos, which Luke is not six seven, but he's like six three and tattooed. So I, I kind of, yeah. But, um, you know, you get very close to characters. You know, they're just... I mean, they live with you for a long time. And I think Luke is the last Mona Lisa is Luke's book. I think the Lost Van Gogh is John Washington Smith, the Interpol guy's book. For me, he just kind of stole the book in the, min in the middle, and that was fine with me because I, I really love him as a character. And I think this third book is Alex's book because she earned a book, you know. So we'll see. We'll see. Patrick, you're working over there. Do you have questions from the online audience? I do. I have a couple of them. Um, this is this is an interesting one. Uh, Robin would like to know: uh, Do you think the Auschwitz Museum should return the original art created by those interned there to the artists' families? <sighs> That's a tough one. That's a tough one because they are memorializing something that happened there and happened, um, I, I don't know that that falls under a category of like looted work, but I, I'm not an expert and I also, I think these are big moral questions that museums, collectors have to come to terms with, you know? I, I don't know, I wouldn't, uh, I, I don't feel that I have the expertise to answer that really, you know? Fair enough. Um, a couple of a couple of other questions. What uh, what is your favorite painting style? For me to look at or do or, well, I can fake anything, which is really crazy. Um, I love painting um, abstract expression, making fakes of like de Koonings and Kleins because those paintings are big and bold, and I'm painting them with double zero brushes to get it exact. But I, I like, you know, I like all art. There's hardly anything. I mean, that's, no, not necessarily true. But, you know, I mean, hmm, my top ten. My favorite artist sometimes is Velasquez, the Maids of Honor. Like, I, that painting makes me want to weep. I, but I love um, John Singer Sargent. I love de Kooning. I thought about stealing a Cezanne from the Museum of Modern Art's recent collection. But since I've worked in museums, I, I know that, you know, I'm going to get caught. But I write about it, so it's in my head. But I, so I like, um, you know, I have very even sort of taste. You know, I, any serious, good, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I love it. You know, it's the way I, people ask me what books I like. I like all, I don't. You know, I like a lot of different things, so, um, yeah. And then kind of in a related, uh, how often do you draw or paint? Is that something you're constantly doing? I draw every single day of my life, and he here's what I, what I do. So I write every day, and I, I would say I want to attribute this to a man who changed my life. So when I, I went to art school, and then I went to graduate art school, um, which was a great indulgence, you know. My parents thought I was studying advertising or they wouldn't pay for it. And I lied to them, you know. I studied painting. I studied fine art and art history. Um, my painting teacher was a man named George McNeil, and he was a founding member of the American Abstract Artists in 1936. And when he, I came to him, I was 22, and he was 60. I thought he was ancient, you know? And he was the most brilliant, most generous, loving man. Um, but he taught me, all of us, his students, there were six of us that worked with him in graduate school, and he said things like, you work every day because you never know what's gonna happen. And it's absolutely true, you know, you can get up, and you're in a bad mood, or you had bad dreams, or you didn't sleep well, or you have a headache, it doesn't matter because then you sit down and you work or you go draw. You I sit down to write because that is more of my full-time job. 
and something happens. It may be not a great day, but you don't know that. And then he taught us that you're your own inventory. And he gave us, this is what he would have us do. So we had a drawing workshop every day for three hours, three hours of drawing. And we'd, every week we'd work on one drawing for the whole week, big piece of paper, black charcoal from a still life he'd set up of like really like 40 objects. And at the end of the week, you had to rip the drawing up into at least a dozen pieces and then glue them down haphazardly on another piece of paper and start a new drawing from that. And what that taught me, and was obviously the exercise, nothing's precious, you can always start again, and that you bring that, your inventory to the table. And I'll tell you, it, it helped my life because uh, 25 years ago, I was having a retrospective show of my paintings. They gathered together 10 years of my work from museums and collectors and my newest six paintings. And the show opened on a Friday and burned down on Saturday. So 10 years of my work was obliterated overnight. Now, I just will say, I wouldn't recommend a fire, but I would never have become a writer. It changed my life in an extraordinary way. So, so I still, oh, but I was gonna answer the question. So writing is very internal and it, because you can't see it, like painting you can see. And so the, the book is in your head. And when I'm writing, I sometimes feel like my head's gonna explode. And so when I feel that, I write for a little more because it's usually good. But then I go to the back of my loft and I draw. And I do that for two reasons. It's physical, so it's not sitting behind a computer. And two, it's something I know I can do. I don't know that I'm going to get through the good writing part, you know, or the bad writing part, but I know I can do a drawing. So it makes me feel good. So I do that every day. And the paintings I do are mainly now commissioned legal forgeries. <laughs> I love it. I hope he's going to turn that into a book at some point. Yes, sir, one more question. How old were you when you started writing novels? I was old. I mean, I was almost 50. And when I say old, I mean because I, you know, I was not a kid when I started. I had been writing uh, for art news and art form. I'd been writing cultural pieces, not criticism, but cultural pieces. And I remember my agent at the time, who was an amazing agent from William Morris, and I said, oh gosh, you know, my book's coming out and I'm gonna be like turning 50. I feel, it's like I'm, I don't know, it feels, and you know, when you're turning 50, you think it's a big deal until you're long past it. But she said, yeah, but you're young in the writing world. You know, it's your first book. And uh, yeah, but you know, I, you know how we all get on a course of what we imagine our lives. I thought I would just be an artist and I still am, but I would never have had this other part to my life. And um, so I feel kind of blessed about that. You know, I mean, everyone's life is up and down and my life's been down and I've had tragedy and I've had this and that, but, um, I think my work has sustained me, you know, my writing, my artwork has sustained me. It's made me, you know, I was not really good at much else. So it was nice to have those, you know, yeah. Some of us eventually realized that, you know, what is it you said, Patrick, to me once that I absolutely love? You said you realized that you're not suitable for other employment. <laughs> 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 but you know, no, but you're a book person, and you know, and you're in the right place. So I came to it after doing other things. I was 50 when I opened the bookstore in 1989. I knew we had something in common. Right. So what were you doing before that? I was a librarian uh, at the Library of Congress, and I was in the law in Virginia, and um, and I have graduate degrees in history and other stuff. I never found a particular path. Until my husband, here's a great note, and everybody should beat this fortune at once. For various circumstances, 
I met my husband, whom I married on my 50th birthday, so I'd have some reason to look forward to getting old, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's great. And anyway, he looked at me one day, and he said, now that you can do whatever you want, what is it you're going to do? Which I thought was just about the best thing anybody could ever say. It is. It's great. So, But, you know, Judy Bloom did that. I'm going there to Key West, so Judy Bloom decided she always wanted to have a bookstore. Right. And she has a bookstore. She like you. She opened. I mean, she yeah, was. Yeah, but old. she was Judy Bloom, and I wasn't anybody no, in the book no, world. It's a huge difference. <laughs> no, but it's the same <laughs> impulse. It's the same yeah. impulse. And Judy, you know, I've I've been to her bookstore at Key West lots of times, and I, I will say that you know when I first met Judy Bloom, my daughter had never been impressed with almost anybody I'd ever met, but Judy Bloom, she just almost fainted that I was having dinner with Judy Bloom. That's very exciting. And It'll be so dull to go out with me now. No, please. <laughs> come on. Anyway, I do think that, um, yeah, we all find certain things that, and, and it changes. I, I never thought things, I didn't, when you're young, you don't realize how there are things that are not controllable in your life and where you go in your life, right. you know? But you also develop skills. For example, yeah. librarians have a rage for order, which is a really good thing if you want to have a bookstore. Lawyers, um, and I did a lot of it, are really good at, you know, in my case, um, you know, cross-examine, arguing in court now, which means that I can interview authors and, you know, it's a piece of cake, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you're not going to prison if it goes wrong. <laughs> well, you never know. So, I mean, you know, who you knows know, that it all sort of comes together. My late we have wife kept was everybody. Was, my late wife was a librarian and a yeah. researcher, so yeah. It's very organized. We did a couple of projects together yeah. that almost ended our marriage. So, okay. I'm not organized. Well, I loved it, but mine is not a corporate spirit. So, on the whole, working in the civil service at the Library of Congress was never going to be a long-term goal for me. Thank you all very much for coming tonight. Let's give Jonathan a round of applause. <laughs> Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.